invite you to take your Bibles now and turn together to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus 20. Uh, This morning we are beginning a new sermon series on the Ten Commandments. By God's grace, we'll be taking a few months to take a careful, slow, in-depth look at the law of God, uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, This is somewhat of a neglected uh, portion of God's word and misunderstood by uh, much of the church today. Uh, Historically, the Ten Commandments were considered part of basic Christian discipleship, and uh, you'll see that reflected in many of the historic catechisms of the church Uh, where they uh, explain and apply God's law. You'll see that in the Westminster Catechisms, and I'd encourage you to to take a look at those as we make our way through the Ten Commandments. Uh, This morning is going to be more of an introduction to the the topic of God's law. It's going to be a little bit more heavy in explanation, but this is helping to set the context as we're just jumping into Exodus chapter 20 here. It's going to help lay a foundation Uh, for rightly understanding and applying uh, God's law, the Ten Commandments. And so I'm going to go ahead and read uh, Exodus 20, verse 1 through 17, and uh, we will give our attention to God's word together. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. And I'm going to read the next few verses as well. 
Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. That's where we'll end the reading of God's word. Let's stop now and ask for his blessing. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for revealing yourself and uh, revealing your character to us in your law. Uh, teaching us what is right and what is wrong, Uh, showing us our sin and our need for a Savior, Uh, giving us a a map by which to walk in this world and be conformed to Jesus Christ. Father, help us now to uh, love you by loving your law and meditating on it together. Uh, Give us understanding and faith. Lord, as we've just sung in Psalm 119, we pray that your word would be sweeter to us than honey. And Father, we pray that you would draw us to the cross of Jesus Christ as well as we hear your word. And we pray this all in his name. Amen. The law of God. How do you react to that? What comes to mind when you hear that phrase, the law of God? Do you see it as valuable, relevant? Do you see it as a blessing, a humbling, good for your faith? Or do you react to it in a way, seeing it as boring? Maybe you react and think that it's confusing or outdated, controversial, Stifling, legalistic, not worth your time. If you react negatively to God's law, if inwardly you yawn or roll your eyes, what might that say about you? About your relationship to your Creator? About your relationship to a large part of His Word which He's given to us? Do you know and value and seek to live by God's law, or do you prefer autonomy, a self-rule, being a law unto yourself, or following the ever-changing laws of man, the will of the majority? Well, as over the next few months, as I've already said, we're going to be looking at a major part of God's moral law, a summary of his moral law, the Ten Commandments. And we're doing this because, um, you'll make this assumption, because God's law is valuable, and it is essential, and it is a blessing when we rightly understand it and apply it as his people. And today I want to begin introducing law in general to help prepare you for studying God's law. Hopefully, this will whet your appetite and make you eager to learn and apply yourself to this portion of God's law. 
Uh, We have a lot of ground that I want to cover this morning, and so I want us to jump right in. And what I want you to see this morning together is that the law of God is of great value. The law of God is of great value when we rightly understand and apply it. And that's important to rightly understand God's law and to apply it rightly. When we understand and apply God's law in light of Jesus, in light of his coming and his work, in light of the gospel, in light of of the sweep of redemptive history, it is of great value. It is of great value for the people of God Uh, for you and for this world. And so as we begin this morning, I want to challenge you uh, to do the hard work of understanding God's law and seeking to rightly apply it. Uh, Because this will be life-changing. This will be of great value for you and for those around you for the church, for your witness to the world, and it will bring great glory to your creator and redeemer. This will reflect your God and glorify him in this world. Well, to begin this morning, I want us to to start by considering three types of law. It's really helpful to distinguish the different categories of law that we find in the scriptures. And this will help us be better prepared to understand and rightly apply God's law this side of the cross. So we're going to consider the three types of law. And the first type of law that we consider this morning is civil law. Civil law. Many of the laws that we see in the Old Testament can be called civil laws. These laws govern Israel's life as a new holy nation as a political body under God. These laws were based on God's moral law, but they dealt with particulars, uh, with specific cases, and they gave specific penalties. If you look ahead in the next chapters of Exodus, you'll see that God gives laws to govern things like slavery, uh, restitution, uh, laws that um, apply to issues of social justice, Uh, These are examples of civil laws. Uh, There were civil laws that addressed warfare, uh, the the use of land, uh, laws that addressed debt, and so forth. These laws were to protect and guide God's people and uphold justice and morality. Uh, They helped maintain Israel's unique uh, holy status among other nations. One example of such a a civil law that's kind of interesting is in Deuteronomy 22, I think. Uh, There's a law there to to have you build a fence or a wall around your roof. And this was simply one way to love your neighbor and keep uh, your neighbor from falling and being injured. Now, there are many principles for us to learn and to apply from the civil laws of the Old Testament. They are very valuable. Uh, But these laws are no longer in force for God's people today. And uh, why is that? Why are these laws in in the particulars no longer binding? Well, the the short answer is because Jesus Christ has come. Uh, Right and wrong has not changed. The, The moral law that undergirds these has not changed. But Christ has now come, 
And he has come as a light for all the nations. He has come to establish a kingdom that is not of this world. Um, His kingdom is not a particular political nation, but it is a multitude of people from every nation. We are governed by Christ our King and by by his word, and not by earthly kings as his people, and not by earthly laws. That is why the church doesn't apply its laws with force. That is why I didn't come this morning with a sword. That's why the elders and deacons don't um, have swords. The church does not bear the sword. Uh, Rather, God uses spiritual means, uh, things like church uh, discipline, not state laws and penalties and weapons to enforce morality among his people. Uh, God uses spiritual consequences rather than civil. Uh, to say, to say and, and insist that we are still under the precise requirements of the Old Testament civil law is the error of what's often called theonomy. Uh, this conflates the church and the state. It misunderstands the nature of the church and Christ's kingdom. And uh, it also misunderstands the role of the civil law and doesn't situate it properly in redemptive history. And so that's a first type of law, civil law. And that leads us then to a second type of law, and that is ceremonial law. Ceremonial law. Large amounts of the Old Testament law fall into this category as well. If you skip ahead a few more chapters in Exodus... You'll see laws about the Ark of the Covenant, laws about the altar, uh, the court of the tabernacle, the priests. Uh, These are all ceremonial laws. They govern Israel's tabernacle and temple worship. Uh, They're feasts. Uh, They guarded the ritual purity of God's people. They distinguish between clean and unclean food and practices. They govern the priesthood and the whole sacrificial system. Now, when you read these laws without understanding their function and their historical setting, many of these laws can seem really foreign and arbitrary and uh, even primitive. And you can kind of get bogged down in them and think, what is God doing? Why is he calling his people to all of this? But each of these laws were very purposeful and meaningful. Uh, these, these laws taught Israel before Christ had come of God's holiness and their sin. And because of that, they taught them of their need for a Savior. They taught Israel of their need for a substitute and a sacrifice because they were sinners. They taught them of their need to be washed and cleansed. They taught them of their need for the blood of atonement. They also taught them the fact that God was to be honored and obeyed by a holy life, and especially honored and obeyed when they approached him in worship. Ultimately, these ceremonial laws pictured and prefigured Jesus Christ, and it would be a helpful sermon series to to actually look at some of these laws and see how they pointed forward to Jesus. But these laws were fulfilled by him. Christ has come. And so that is why we don't have a lamb here to sacrifice this morning. That's why I'm not wearing a priestly robe. That's why there's no physical temple that we've come to. 
There's no holy of holies. There's no curtain. There are no altars. There's no smoke. There's no blood. All of these things pointed ahead in many different ways, memorable, visible, tangible ways to the coming Christ and his cross and his perfect work, the fullness of redemption through his shed blood. As Colossians 2.17 says, these things were a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. If you read the book of Hebrews, the whole argument of Hebrews is that the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament, uh, these were temporary types and shadows. They were not permanent. They were valuable at the time, very valuable for Israel looking ahead to Christ. They're very valuable for us looking back to him, understanding who he is and what he's done. But they are inferior to Christ who is the real thing who is the the real, final, great high priest, who is the once-for-all sacrifice that that removes our sins. To continue to follow the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament is to deny the fulfillment of these by Jesus and his all-sufficient sacrifice. And so these laws are now obsolete. They are no longer in force for the people of God because Christ has come. Instead, Jesus has given us, he's instituted, a baptism and the Lord's Supper as ceremonies for the new covenant church. These today for us point to his completed sacrificial work as Savior. And so when you open your Bible and you read in the Old Testament about feasts and the tabernacle and the temple and the sacrifices, all kinds of different sacrifices, These point you, as they did Israel, to the person and work of Jesus, uh, to what he has done. These have been abolished because he has fulfilled all of them. Now there's one people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, from every nation, worshiping all over the world, not in a physical temple, but they are the temple of God as God's spirit dwells in them. Now, some will hear this and think, well, what you're saying, doesn't doesn't this mean that God changes? Sounds like you're saying God changes his mind. He changes his requirements. He moves the target. Uh, But God is the same. Uh, Truth is the same. God is unchanging. But God deals with men who are always changing. Uh, God works in and through history and time which is always changing. Uh, He reveals himself in his plan of redemption, not all at once, but gradually and progressively. And so he prepared his people uh, for the coming Messiah with worship and with laws that were appropriate for the time before he came. Uh, This doesn't mean that he's inconsistent or changes, but that he accommodates to men and to their needs. Think about when we teach our children how to read. Uh, We don't hand them Shakespeare when they're three or four years old. Uh, No, we start with the alphabet. We start with big, thick books and big letters and short words. And that lays a foundation. And that's not being inconsistent or unpredictable. That's being a good teacher. Uh, That's recognizing different needs at different times. 
uh, accommodating to where people are. And that's what God did for his people before Jesus came as they waited for his coming. Before the cross, before the gospel has gone out to all the nations. Well, that leads us then to a third type of law, uh, which has not changed with Christ and which is going to be our focus in the weeks ahead. If anything, this law has been reinforced and deepened and pressed even more into the heart with the coming of Christ. And that is the moral law. The moral law. The moral law, as I've already said, is summarized for us in the ten words, the ten commandments. These commandments were written in stone, and then they were placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, The civil laws were not. The ceremonial laws were not. Uh, This conveys something of their special relevance and their ongoing permanence. The moral law predated the civil law and the ceremonial laws and continues beyond them. And unlike the civil and ceremonial laws, the moral law has never been abrogated or or fulfilled in a way that, that ends it in Christ. In fact, we're going to see that the Ten Commandments are repeated and reinforced in the New Testament in the weeks ahead. The moral law is based on and is an expression of the character of God, his unchanging moral character. God is a moral being, and his law is an expression of that. It's consistent with his glory and his holiness. It shows us right and wrong. It defines for us good and evil. It shows us God's perfect standard, which doesn't change, and which we as sinners fail to meet. It leads us to be like God. It regulates our thoughts and our attitudes and our actions according to who he is and what pleases him. It gives us God's design for life in his world, And it lays out for us the pattern of um, Christ-likeness, the pattern of holiness, life, and joy. It shows us what relationship is supposed to look like with both God, our creator, and with our brothers and sisters, our fellow man. And so I want to ask you this morning, as we've considered these different types of law and as we're finishing considering the moral law, do you know God's moral law? Do you know what God says about right and wrong, justice and injustice, good and evil? And if you don't or if you reject his law, then what is the basis for your own sense of right and wrong, for good and evil? Do you know what you were created to live out, what your creator expects of you? And are you seeking to follow him? The Ten Commandments are God's summary of his permanent, unchanging moral law. They are true and binding for all people at all times and in all places. And that's why they are relevant to us today. That's why we need God's law today. Well, that was a bit of a crash course. Thank you for Uh, bearing with me as we worked through that. But that leads us second this morning to look at the right use of God's moral law. 
how do we rightly apply and use God's moral law if, in fact, it does continue to be binding for us today? Well, historically, the church has recognized three main distinct uses of God's moral law. Now, we need to be very clear. The moral law is not a means of salvation. Absolutely not. It is not a means of salvation since none of us can keep it due to sin. And all of us have original sin and a sinful nature. Keeping the law does not and cannot save us, even if we could keep it. But it does have a very valuable and necessary purpose for the people of God. It does have a a valuable and necessary use. Well, what is that? What is the use of God's law? Let's consider that second this morning, the three uses of God's law. The first use, and you'll see this in your outline that I want us to consider, is that God's law restrains sin. Restrains sin. One of the purposes of God's law in a sinful world is to restrain sin. To be a public witness to morality. Uh, To tell the world what is right and what is wrong. To make men fear breaking the law as well as the consequences of doing so. Uh, The law promotes righteousness in society. Uh, The law, and especially this use of the law, presupposes the existence of sin and the sinful human nature, the the fallen nature, the tendency towards lawlessness. And wrong and evil in mankind. Now the law can't fix this. The law cannot change hearts. It cannot make a sinner no longer a sinner. But it can, by God's grace, restrain sin to some extent in society. We read in Romans 13 that rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. It goes on and says, if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Romans 13 is telling us there that rulers, even corrupt earthly rulers, um, unchristian rulers can help restrain sin and punish wrong when they uphold and enforce the law. This gives men a rightful fear and respect. Now, the law cannot eradicate sin, but it can keep it from being as prevalent and unchecked as it could be. Listen again to verse 20 of Exodus 20. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The law was given in part to create in them and in us and in mankind a rightful fear of God, a fear of disobeying God, a fear of the consequences so that we might not do wrong, so that we might not sin. Think about a no trespassing sign. You might come up to a property and there's a no trespassing sign. There may not be a wall or a fence And that sign can't keep anyone from crossing over. It can't keep anyone from trespassing, but it does alert and warn people, and it restrains many from crossing and breaking that law. 
The moral law is for all people. It is written on man's heart, even though it is suppressed and ignored. And you can read about that in Romans 2. You might be here this morning hearing this and thinking, this is ridiculous. Uh, I don't believe in God's law. I don't believe in a set um, standard of right and wrong given from God. But you need to know that you have a sense of right and wrong written on your heart. You have, because you're made in God's image, you have a sense of justice and injustice. If I were to come up to you later this morning and push you over and take your purse or your money, you would know that that was wrong. And you would rightly see that as wrong and want that to be restrained. God's law is written on mankind, even if we suppress it or ignore large parts of it. We know um, intuitively because of who made us that there is right and there's wrong. We know that in a way that animals do not. And so God's law is even written on human hearts. It calls everyone to obey and submit to the creator and show love to his neighbor. I want you to try to imagine Can you imagine society with no law, with absolutely no sense of right and wrong? Sadly, you can probably imagine that a little bit, can't you? Because to the extent that God's law is ignored and cast off, sin will be less and less restrained and more and more excused and permitted and even celebrated. And we see that, sadly, we see that happening around us in the world today. We can even see it in our own hearts at times. And so we need God's moral law more than ever, even in a limited role, to restrain, to restrain sin. Well, that leads us then second, the second use of God's law is to reveal sin. We've said the law has no power over sin, It can be used by God to restrain some sin, but it can't deliver you from sin. It can't keep you completely from sinning. It can't save you. It can't forgive you for your sins. And yet it plays an extremely important role for sinners, for lawbreakers. And that is to show them their sin. To identify them as sinners as guilty before the God who made them and who revealed himself in his law. When you see what God says about right and wrong, about good and evil, then you see where you stand, where you stand before the God who made you. You see where you have been wrong and done evil. You see how you break the law. In Romans chapter 3, we read that we all have sinned. We have all broken God's law. We've We all fall short of his glory and his standard. And Romans 3 also says that it's through the law, through the law comes knowledge of sin. God's law shows us our serious problem. It shows us that we are lawbreakers, that we are condemned, that we're guilty, that we deserve God's just judgment. Now you may hear this and think, Okay, but why did God place a requirement on us that we can't keep? Why does God tell us how bad we are if we can't help it? Well, God knows that we can't, in our sinful nature, 
in and of ourselves that we can't keep his law. But he has a good and gracious purpose in giving it to us. And he's not going to adjust his standard. He's not going to relax his standard because we fail to keep it. He's not going to tolerate and accept rebellion and evil. If God did that, if he overlooked sin, if he ignored it, if he allowed lawlessness or he, he relaxed his standards because of us, he would not be good and just. He himself would not be righteous. And so his law remains a, signpoint, a signpost for all that, that points out our lost sinful condition, showing us that we are in trouble so showing us that we're in a mess that, that we can't get out of, we can't fix. And showing us that because we need help. We need a Savior. Romans 7, 7 says, If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. If you have no sin, if you don't know of your sin then you won't know what is wrong with this world, what is wrong with you. And you won't know that you need a Savior. If you don't know the bad news about yourself, you will never have any need of the good news about the Savior. The cross of Jesus Christ, the gospel, is meaningless and empty if you don't know your sin. And that you are guilty before a holy God. Without God's law revealing sin, we would not know what's wrong with this world, why it's so miserable, and why people treat us the way they do, why we treat others the way we do. And we would be tempted to think, and we often think, that we're okay. We're not that bad. I'm a good person. I've never done anything really bad. I'm not as bad as that person or that figure in history. I, I deserve heaven. Why wouldn't God give me that? Those are some of the worst lies of Satan. Satan hates God's law because it shatters those lies. It says you are not good by nature. You know what good is, but you in yourself, you are a sinner. And you need serious help. God's law is like, like an MRI peering below the surface into the depths of our being, showing where there's brokenness and decay, showing where there's cancer, where there's a deadly problem that needs a divine remedy. And when the law reveals our sin, when it shows us the bad news, it doesn't stop there. It pushes us to the remedy. It shows us that we need help. It pushes us towards the good news. It pairs with the gospel. It drives you to Jesus Christ. It makes known your great need so that you would know God's great provision in a Savior. The lawgiver, the reality is the lawgiver has also sent a law keeper and a savior for lawbreakers, Jesus. And again and again, the law shows you your sin and drives you out of yourself and drives you to the savior and to his cross, uh, to the grace of God. 
The law teaches you of your sin. It convicts you of your sin. It it pushes you to repent of your sin and drives you to Jesus Christ. And this may be the most important use of God's law. You need to know that you break it, but that Jesus kept it and was punished for you if your faith is in him. And Jesus saves. You need Jesus because you have broken God's law and you are sinful and guilty before him. And we're going to want to see in our series on the Ten Commandments, with each commandment, how we fall short. Even now as believers, with God's spirit working in us and sanctifying us, we fall short, we break God's law. But again and again, we're going to see how Jesus kept it completely and perfectly for us, that we might be counted righteous in him, that he might die in our place as a perfect, righteous sacrifice. As we look at the law, our sin is revealed, but so is our Savior. Thanks be to God. And that leaves us then with one more use, the third use of God's law, and that is it is a rule of life. A rule of life. The law restrains sin. It reveals sin and our need for a Savior. But once you've seen your sin and you are saved by grace through faith, the law then becomes a rule of life, a rule of life, a positive guide for life in Jesus Christ, directing you how to live for God, how to love him and worship him and love others. We read Exodus chapter 20, and it's important to notice that here in Exodus, When God gives his people the law, the Ten Commandments, we need to notice that he gave it to them, or he did not give his people the law before redeeming them out of Egypt. He didn't say, if you keep this, I will save you. If you keep this, I'll bring you out of Egypt. He doesn't say, keep it, and then you can be my people. No, he said, since you are my people, Since I've redeemed you, serve me, live for me, obey me. This is what that looks like. Follow my law and live as my holy people uh, to my glory. The prologue to the Ten Commandments reminded them of that. Look at verse 2 again here in Exodus 20. It says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. They were in covenant relationship with the Lord their God already. He was the one that brought them out of Egypt. The Ten Commandments was not a a covenant of works. It was not a means of earning God's favor, getting God to enter into relationship with them. It was not a means of earning redemption. The Ten Commandments was a rule of life for those already in gracious relationship with God. God's law drives us to Christ and shows us our emptiness and our utter need of grace. But having that grace, having that redemption from God, it is then a guide to lead us in new life. And we need to understand that God's grace does not just save us from Egypt. It does not just save us from sin and hell. Thanks be to God, it does. 
But God's grace also sanctifies us. And it begins to change and transform us now. God's grace begins to remake us into his image. And so in light of and by God's abounding grace, we seek to glorify him by living out of gratitude to him according to his law. Because he's delivered us from Egypt. He's delivered us from sin and death. Because his grace is sufficient to deliver both from the penalty of sin and the power of sin. And so we take up his law as a guide for new life in Christ because we love him. And we love him because he first loved us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes it clear that you are saved not by works, not by keeping the law, but you are saved for good works. You are saved unto good works. You are created new in Christ for good works, for living out of love and gratitude according to God's way of life. And his law shows us what is good, um, how to love him, how to love others. And slowly his word works in us by his spirit to remake us, to make us more like Christ, uh, to help us love God and neighbor more and more. Friends, is God's law your rule of life? And if not, what is? What is guiding you, your decisions, your actions? Do you want to love God and glorify him? Do you want to serve and love others? Then use his law. Ask him to show you your sin and your savior in his law. And then to guide you in righteousness. To use his law as a rule of life in Christ by God's grace. Well, we have covered a lot of ground quickly this morning. Thank you for your patience in this kind of information-heavy introduction. But we are laying a foundation to rightly understand and apply God's law. We've distinguished the three types of law, civil, ceremonial, and moral. We've considered the proper uses of God's moral law. It's like a tool that you have to properly use for it to be effective. Driving a screw in with a hammer doesn't work. And neither does using God's law improperly. It can really bring damage and, and cause harm. And so we saw the law is one way that God restrains sin in this world. It's a primary way he brings conviction of sin and drives you to Jesus Christ. And finally, it's a guide for growing in Christ and living a life of gratitude and praise to him. And my prayer is that this makes you all the more eager to study and know and love God's law. To live it out, maybe for the first time or again in a deeper way. And my prayer is that it makes you love Jesus Christ all the more and be thankful for what he's done. Uh, trusting all the more in him and awe of him. And kids, as we go through the Ten Commandments, I want you especially to learn as much as you can about your God. And as we go through this, I want you to, to see your sin and see the bad news. The, but that's because the law then brings us to the good news, to the cross to the wonderful solution to your lawlessness, my lawlessness and sin. 
our only Savior. And then it shows us how to respond to God's grace with love for him and love for others. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we just sang in Psalm 119, Oh, how I love your law. And that's where we want to start and end with God's law. Because of God's love for us in Christ, because Jesus kept the law for us when we could not, because the law reveals his glory and his gospel, we love it because we love him. And we love him because he has first loved us. And so we respond with with loving, obedient gratitude. People of God, value and love the law of God because you love him who gave it. And because you love him who made you and saved you. Him who first loved you. Love his law out of love for him. Seek to rightly understand and apply it to your great benefit and to his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your law. We thank you for, Lord, even as painful as it is, revealing our sin, showing us that we are sinners, so that we might see our need for the Lord Jesus Christ, who came and perfectly kept your law and willingly laid down his life for us. Lord, as we give our attention in the weeks ahead to the Ten Commandments and rightly trying to understand and apply your law, we pray that it would be a means of grace that it would bring good to us and glory to you, that would humble us and drive us again and again to the Lord Jesus Christ. We do pray all of this in his name. Amen. Let's